I want to invite you guys to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be launching into a new chapter in this ancient letter that we've been walking through together over the last few months. If you're visiting with us this morning, it's your first time uh, here at Trinity, uh, I want to also offer you a copy of the Bible if you don't have one. We'd love for you to take one of the Bibles that are at the center of each aisle. Uh, we, we have those here not only for you to use during the, the time in our service that we're walking through verse by verse a part of the Bible, but also so that you can take it with you and have a copy of your own and then and maybe follow up with us later about questions you have from what we're going to talk about this morning or what you read on your own. Uh, we'd love the chance to, to connect you to Jesus through his word. We're, uh, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. We're, we're walking through this ancient letter that the Apostle Paul, one of the founders of Christianity, wrote to some of his friends in a church that he had founded through his own ministry, but that as, as he had moved on to other parts of, that, uh, of his ancient world, uh, had started to drift away from the message that he taught them when he was actually with them. He wrote this letter to sort of pastor them from a distance, to try to bring them back from some things that they were tempted to believe that were, that were false and deadly. We've come to a section of the letter where he's trying to recast for these Corinthians, his friends, what they should be aiming their lives toward. One of the things that these false teachers who'd come in after Paul had been trying to teach them and stir up in them was their desire to make a name for themselves in this life, in the bodies that they already possess, the relationships that they already have, with the opportunities for accomplishment that are already in front of them. Paul wants to reconnect them to a vision of their future that's much bigger than anything that would ever happen in the body they already have. He wants their hearts to belong to a future that God will have to build for them, that God will have to give to them through a new body that's as alive and immortal as Jesus' body. This morning, the the part of of the letter that we've come to is all about this vision of their future that Paul wants them locked in on a vision that's much bigger than the one they have on their own, that's much more life-giving, much more secure. And so what we're going to look at, what I want you paying attention to, is a vision that, that could be your future. Yes, it will require you to recalibrate your thinking a bit, to look beyond the horizons that normally limit our view, the things you might accomplish, say, in the next 10 years pieces to a meaningful life that you might add in, say, the next 20 years, to look beyond what may or may not come of your future in this life as you know it, to a future that you have no hope of building for yourself, but that therefore can come to you as a gift, free, secure, perfect from God's hand. I want us to spend some time this morning talking about what we're waiting for. If we're in Christ's we are a people who wait. We wait for God to make good on the promises that he's made. What is it exactly that we're waiting for? That's where Paul directs our attention. And then I want us to consider what we do while we wait, because Paul goes there next. The first five verses that we're going to look at this morning is Paul pointing ahead to this future that he wants his friends locked in on. He's describing what we're waiting for if we're with Jesus. And then in verses 6 to 10, of this chapter, he switches gears and starts pointing to what we should be thinking about now while we wait. How can we live now? What is our life for as we wait for this future that only God could give us? 
Those are the two steps I want us to take, what we're waiting for and what we do while we wait. And I want to begin by reading the first 10 verses of chapter 5. I'm going to ask you too, if you will, please stand with me in honor of God's word while we read. Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is God's Word. You can be seated. What are you waiting for? That's the question I want you to be thinking about and that I pray we're able to answer by the end of our time together this morning. Are you looking ahead to what God has offered through Jesus? Or does your heart belong to some other future? One that you've imagined for yourself. One that you're now working to build with your own hands. I want to point you to what Paul's waiting for. Verse 1 contains just in in, in its couple of lines, really all the ideas that come later in the passage. They're all packed in there in a kind of concentrate form. It's all found in this contrast Paul draws between what is now and what is to come. In In the passage we looked at last week, he was drawing contrast between what's outer and what's inner, between what's seen and what's unseen, between what's eternal and what's transient or passing away. Here, same basic idea, but now he's using this language of a tent, an earthly home, one that's being destroyed, and a building, one that God is making, eternal in the heavens. The earthly tent is a reference to this body and to all that we accomplish through this body. And the building that God has built, verse 1, that he refers to there is is a reference to some sort of house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. But what is this building? What is it that God has prepared? What can we learn from the rest of what Paul says that might clue us in? He's unpacking it in verse 2. In this tent, 
Paul switches back to, to this earthly tent. In this tent, we're, we're groaning. This body, living life in this world, limited by aging and decay and disasters and frustrations, all the things that are passing away, being destroyed. In this tent, Paul says, we groan, longing to put on something else, something heavenly, secure, perfect. Most people here in this language of groaning, an echo of what the people of Israel experienced when they were in slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus in the Old Testament tells this story that was a fundamental story to how Israel understood themselves and God's relationship to them. One of the key lines in that story is that Israel working day after day after day doing the bidding of some other Lord besides theirs. They groaned and the sound of their groaning came up to God who heard it and who acted to deliver them. Paul probably here is trying to allude to that experience. He sees his life in this earthly tent as a kind of bondage, a lot like what Israel experienced in Egypt. And he's groaning to be set free. Now, what you might think immediately is that what Paul wants to be set free from is a body. A lot of people who lived around the time Paul did did think about things this way. Everything you could touch, everything that you could experience with your own senses things you could taste or see or feel. All that's bad. It's distracting you from a life of clarity and purpose and meaning that comes through your mind or through your soul. So physical things you want to be set free from so that the, the mental and the spiritual things can be more, uh, more easily and, and freely enjoyed. That's not actually what Paul's saying. Paul says, actually, what we want to do is put on our heavenly dwelling Not that we don't want to be unclothed. We don't want to take off a body. We need a body. It's through bodies that we experience everything good that God has put in front of us. I want another body. That's what Paul's saying. He wants to be further clothed. That's what verse 4 says. While we're in this tent, we groan. But Paul doesn't want to be set free from a body. He doesn't want to be unclothed. He wants to be further clothed. He wants an overcoat. He wants what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. If you think back to, to what we talked about last week, he talked about life as the outer man in this age where death is so real and powerful and inescapable. Everything in, in life as we're living it now is limited by the fact that everything dies. He talked about it as being destroyed or wasting away. Think about us as running through our whole lives from a kind of Pac-Man that's coming after us, right? The big mouth looking to swallow everything that matters to us separate us from all that we love. Now, Paul wants that image for life reversed. He wants what is, what is living to swallow up what is mortal. One of the best images for death is as a swallowing, as this voracious appetite that's never satisfied, that just consumes and consumes and consumes. And Paul's saying, no, I want to be swallowed up by life. I want everything that's dying to be swallowed by this Pac-Man that just takes it all in and converts it into something that's living. That's what Paul's longing for. He wants to live in a body that can't be destroyed. What are we waiting for? We put all these pieces together. Paul is waiting for God to provide him with a life that can't be destroyed. 
a life of God's design, a life fashioned by God's hands and therefore permanent and perfect, a life where happiness is not held back by, by the loss of what you love, a life where your fulfillment is not held back by your own limitations to accomplish what you want. A life where the future is not a threat, but an unending and glorious feast. He wants to know happiness and joy and security forever. One commentator said to our minds, this present existence, the one we're living in now, it's what we can feel. It's what's secure. It's what's tangible, solid, and real. Whereas the thought of another kind of existence, that's just shadowy and insubstantial. But Paul teaches us here that the reverse is actually true. That the life which is to come is strong and permanent and real. And it's the present life that we're living now that's among the shadows. This is not the same commentary he writes. Paul's not yearning for death to bring an end to this present life. He is longing to be overcoated with all the blessings God has for us in the new age. That's what Paul's waiting for. What are you waiting for? I think most of us, if we're honest about that, what we're waiting for is to arrive. We see ourselves as en route to some sort of life that we have imagined, maybe one we've designed and that we're busily trying to prepare. I think this shows up when we have meaningful milestone birthdays, right? Earlier this week, uh, I was talking to some buddies in our small group. One of our buddies had just turned 30. We were talking about how all of us tend to like, have benchmark birthdays where we're always tempted to do this sort of self-analysis. How am I doing? You check in maybe at 21. You check in at 30. Maybe you check in at 40, then again at 50. What are we checking in on? What are we sizing up? Well, we're looking to see how far we've climbed the ladder that we imagined for ourselves at our last check-in. Maybe we're looking to see how much further we've climbed than our friends. Maybe you imagine yourself going back to your high school reunion or your college reunion or your medical school reunion and comparing CVs with the people who started where you did. All of us do this. And when we do it, friends, listen to this. This is so important. Every time we find ourselves checking in to see how far we've come, every time we're sizing ourselves up based on our accomplishments, weighing them against what we had hoped to accomplish, Every time we do it, we show that we're trying to build lives with our own hands. We show that we are heavily invested in the quality of these earthly tents that we've built for ourselves. One commentator pointed out something I never would have noticed on my own, but that opened up, I believe, the meaning of this passage for us. He pointed out, this uh, commentator named Mark Seifert has been so helpful to me in understanding 2 Corinthians. 
He pointed out that this phrase, a building from God, a house not made with hands, is a loaded phrase. Not made with hands. And it's actually a kind of shorthand reference to something that comes up all through the Old Testament. When the prophets, for example, are criticizing Israel for their idolatry. That something made with hands is a kind of code language for an idol. A God that you build for yourself based on your own design. So that you can harness that God's power to build a life for yourself based on your own design. Idolatry is always fed by the sense that I know what's best for me. I've just got to figure out how to get these powers on my side to bring about what's best for me. The whole point, though, is that I'm the fashioner here, right? I'm the designer. I'm the one whose hands are trying to produce the thing my mind and heart has envisioned and longed for. Paul's saying here, what I want is a house I couldn't design and I couldn't build. A future, a life that comes as a gift or not at all. And friends, when we want to build our life on our terms, when we want to, to fashion for ourselves a tent that's made by our hands, we're doing something that is always going to end in failure. It won't hold. And I'm guessing that you're probably feeling the burden of your insecurity already. came across an image in a novel a while back of a character doing basically what Paul's calling us not to do here. Trying to build a life based on your own design, based on your own power to produce it. An, An image in this novel for the insecurity that comes when that's what our lives are really about. The woman, a character named Edith who's who's felt for a long time that she had produced the life that she wanted and then the stress starts to come. Then her adult children start to deviate from the kind of perfect image that she had developed of them and took credit for in her own heart. And one by one, the things that she had used as benchmarks to compare her life to her friends and neighbors began to crumble. And she describes the feeling of it as if she recognized then for the first time that she had built for herself a house made of walls and roofs of tissue paper and a storm had come and she's scurrying around trying to rehang this tissue paper as the storm comes down and evaporates it, right? Shows it for what it is. Helpless to hold back the forces of life in a world where everything that is is also passing away. The insecurity you feel, friends, is probably from a sense that you have built for yourself a life of your own design that's nothing more than a tent made of walls of tissue paper in the storm that is decay and death, and it won't hold. There is no ladder to climb. Everything is passing away. You and everything you do on your own will be forgotten. The groaning you feel could be something you've mislabeled. Maybe you feel that your life isn't what it should be only because you haven't arrived yet. Maybe you feel that your life would be better if you hadn't missed out on what could have been, maybe on something others have. But beneath that diagnosis is something much deeper that maybe you just haven't had the words for yet. 
a groaning in you for something more than this life in these mortal bodies will ever be able to deliver. C.S. Lewis says our hunger, all of us hunger for something more, for something that transcends what time is gonna steal away, what decay is gonna break down, and what death is gonna separate us from. All of us long for something more than what life as we know it now in these mortal bodies can provide. And this hunger that we have, Lewis says, is a sign that we were actually made for more and that more actually exists. He compares this hunger for meaning in life to something like the human body's hunger for bread, for something to eat. The fact that we're so hungry when our, when our stomachs are empty is a sign that we are creatures made to replenish ourselves through eating. And it's a sign that something such as bread actually does exist. Our longing for transcendence is a kind of hunger that points to what we were made for and that points to the fact that something more than what we now experience in these mortal bodies really does exist out there. And the promise that Paul is riffing on in these first five verses is that God has already prepared what you were made for, what you're starving for, what he alone can build for you and give to you as his gift. It's already there for the taking by faith. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens where everything mortal is swallowed up by life. Friends, the only thing that makes this future possible, the only thing that makes this future possible is a story so outlandish, so seemingly impossible that it sounds like it belongs more in one of Disney's roster fairy tales than in real life, but that the Bible says is actually true. That story is the Bible's story that the one being in this world that exists because he has to, that can't not exist, immortal by nature, the one reason there is something rather than nothing, the only reason anything else exists, This God became mortal like us. He took on a body that could be killed. Took on an outer man that is wasting away. Fully identified himself with our decaying tents for love. John chapter 1 actually talks about Jesus becoming human as the Word, eternal God, pitching his tent among us. It says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but it's the Word for pitched his tent among us. Took on an earthly tent that could be destroyed. And he did this so that in his body, he could pay the penalty of death that it's owed to everyone who's ever claimed through their sin that their life was on their terms to be lived as they saw fit. 
who denied the immortal God who made them by their decision to live as if they were their own maker. In other words, me, you. This immortal God pitched his tent among us so that so that we who were mortal could put on immortality. He became like us so that we could become like him. He died a death that's as real as the one I'm going to die. As real as the one you will die. But three days later, his body came out of the grave. It lives now as real as my body, even more real. And with his resurrection came to us a promise that the mortal has already been swallowed up by life. And that anyone who will believe in him, the resurrection and the life will never die. He became like us so that we could become like him. That's available to you this morning, right now. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for a body like the one Jesus has. A body in which the mortal has been swallowed up by life. In which all of us are what we were made to be. Fully satisfied with his image. That's what we're waiting for. What do we do while we wait? What does this mean for our lives in the meantime? While we wait for what God has prepared. I mean, it seems pretty clear. Paul has already told us just through the implications of, of what we've already looked at. He said, don't spend your time trying to build a life for yourself based on your design, based on your ability to perform. That's a dead end, literally. Don't do it. So what should we do if not that? What do we do in the meantime while we wait? I want to point you to two things that Paul points us to beginning in verse 6. Here's the first one. While we wait, two things. First, we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to fear. That's the first conclusion. Look at verse 6. So, Paul's about to draw a conclusion from things he said in verses 1 to 5, from this house that's been made by God's hands. So, that's what I'm waiting for. So, I'm always of good courage. I'm not afraid. Same thing comes out in verse 8. Yeah, I'm of good courage. I'm not afraid. Yes, I'd rather be with the Lord, he says. While I'm at home in this body, I'm away from the Lord. Now I've got to walk by faith. I can't walk by sight. All of this stuff I'm longing for isn't mine yet. And I'd rather that it were mine. If I had my druthers, I'd already be with them. But... Whether we're at home or away, I'm, I'm of good courage while I wait. Paul's got no reason to fear. He's not stressed. I think it comes directly from the fact that he knows his future is not of his design. It doesn't depend on his ingenuity. It doesn't depend on his skill. It doesn't depend on his resilience. It's not anything tied to his hands. He's set free from fear. Fear is usually tied for us. Fear is usually tied to the future, to what might be, to something that we desperately want to be true or something that we desperately want to avoid. Bonhoeffer says in Cost of Discipleship that our fears are always directed towards tomorrow. 
Our fears are pulling tomorrow from tomorrow, the future, and planting it in today where we're already experiencing what might be. We fear that our lives could be derailed. We fear that we might not actually produce what we hope to. We fear that we might not be able to protect what we already have and what we love. But most of our fears, friends, belong to this earthly tent that Paul says is being destroyed anyway, that's wasting away. Our fears about what might be, fears for safety, fears for physical harm or financial crisis, our fears about what might not be, that we might take some sort of wrong path that, that, that derails our career, that we might miss out on the perfect spouse, that we might be ruined through bad choices. Our fear of what might be or what might not be, all of it comes from a lack of honesty about what will be. Any life we build for ourselves, even if it was exactly what we want it to be, will be destroyed. We're living in tents. And what's more, in Christ, we are promised a building from God, a life, a happiness, a future that can't be destroyed. So the worst that could happen in this life, we would actually be killed somehow, only brings us closer to the presence of God that has been promised us already. I'm reminded of what Paul says here and why he's of such good courage. He's locked in on this future that he knows is going to involve death for his earthly tent and life because it'll be swallowed up as God has promised, a building made by God's hands, not his. This sort of realism, both about what life in this world is like and about what God has promised, reminds me of the example of a 19th century missionary named John Patton. He's not as well known as he used to be. Anybody heard of John Patton? Just out of curiosity. I have a few hands have heard of John Patton. He was a Scottish guy who, uh, who went to the New Hebrides uh, back in the 1860s. This was an, uh, uh, an island people who practiced cannibalism. And the first missionaries from Europe to have landed there uh, were eaten within a few minutes of their landing. About 20 years later, Patton goes. It's his turn. And one of the, one of the uh, people who were involved, I guess, in his ministry, sending team, development, they, like, didn't want him to go for obvious reasons. One Mr. Dickerson says, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And Patton says to Dickerson, this is kind of cruel, but it's actually pretty straightforward and, and helpful, I think, ultimately. Listen to what he says to Dickerson. Mr. Dickerson, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave to be eaten by worms. <laughs> I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. What's Patton tapped into there? Honesty about his earthly tent. It's going to be eaten one way or the other. And a resilient, vivid hope for a building not made with hands that no cannibal 
could stop God from establishing for his own. If this is our future, if this is what we're waiting for, we have no reason to fear while we wait. That's the first thing Paul points us to. Here's the second. What do we do while we wait for a future we can't produce that will come to us as a gift or not at all? What do we do while we wait? Well, first, we we have no reason to fear. Second, we have one reason to live. We have no reason to fear. We have one reason to live. Paul may be of good courage with no reason to fear, but he's not case ras about his life either. It's not like he's just sitting back with his feet propped up on his ottoman watching streaming Netflix or whatever till glory comes. He's not just writing out his life. He's not interested in a house that's built by his own hands. That's true. He's not interested in a life that's just going to be destroyed with everything else that's passing away. But he is laser focused and driven to make the most of this life in this tent while he has it. Verse 9 shows us what he's living for. Yeah, he'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, but that's above his pay grade. He doesn't know how long he has. He'll wait for God to do what God is going to do. So whether I'm at home or away, he says, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. What do you do while you wait on a future only God can give you? You live the day in front of you in a way that pleases Him. When your future is in God's hands, when death has stripped away all other foolish goals, there is only one central concern left over. Paul knows that his life is an opportunity to make God happy. And he knows that one day he is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of what he's done with the days that God gave him here. Did you notice that when we read verse 10? The reason he's making it his aim to please him, and that's all that comes into it for him, is that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul's referring here to something he refers to in other letters. First Corinthians talks about this. Something that Jesus referred to multiple times in his ministry. A judgment, a day where every single one of us, those of us who are Christians and trusting in Christ's righteousness, will stand before him. An actual moment we will experience where he will call us to account for everything we've ever done. And Paul wants to please him. And we've got to be really careful here. I want to spend a few minutes before we end this morning trying to make it as clear as we can make it what Paul is saying and what he's not saying here. Because when he refers to his one goal being to please him and then he refers to that as being justified by the fact that he's going to give an account one day and he wants to give a good account. We go somewhere in our minds that Paul wouldn't want us to. We need to make really clear that we understand him in light of what he's already said and what he's about to say in this very same letter. 
If we don't pay attention to what he says around this reference to the judgment seat of Jesus, then we might misunderstand what it means to please him as a judge and how it's possible to please him as a judge. Let me get clear from the context what it means to please God, to please Christ as our judge. We think immediately, I think, of that, that it, 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 he has to mean that we earn our place, earn any favor we get from Jesus. But if you look down just a few more verses into chapter 5 here in 2 Corinthians, it just doesn't square with what Paul says about what God has done in Jesus. I mean, the reason God has gone to this extreme length to actually become one of us, to pitch his tent in a body just like ours, to live and to die and rise again isn't just to show us a better and more clear example of how we're supposed to be. That's, that cost is just way too high. He wouldn't do that. Why did he go to the lengths that he did? Well, chapter 5 answers this. We have concluded, Paul says in verse 14, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. We got what we deserved in Jesus. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Skip down. If you're in Christ, verse 17 says, you're a new creature. The old has passed away. The new has come. Verse 19 says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of these verses are building the same picture. That for us to be righteous before God, which is to say for us to be, to, to, to be pleasing to him. That's what it means to be righteous, to be worthy of him, to, be, to make him happy. We need, just need to be in Jesus. Jesus has already pleased him. Jesus became sin so that we might become righteous. That's what verse 21 says. So that means we need to banish from our minds an image of Christ as America's Got Talent judge. I think that's the right one. I get them confused and I don't actually watch them. So forgive me if I've gotten this wrong, but I think America's Got Talent is or maybe was, I don't know if it's still on or not, the one where this panel of judges sits in front of people singing and they've got their finger just hovering over the button that that, that, that has this loud warning sound and a huge uh, red X that appears above them. Isn't that the one? That's America's Got Talent, right? So, so, so you, don't want, you want to sing in order to avoid the, the, the button being pushed that, that pops up the X and ends your performance. I think in, initially we think about God as that sort of judge, almost amused by our attempt to please him, waiting for a chance to pounce the idea of Christ as a judge who we appear before, it makes us feel like we're being evaluated in that sense. That's way out of step with what Paul and all the other biblical writers say about what God expects from us through Jesus. What it means to please him as judge is not that we have wowed him by our performance and gotten the green O instead of the red X. Another writer points to another illustration, another, uh, another uh, reality show where you perform. It's actually a better image of what our performance before Jesus should evoke in us. He points to 
the American Idol finale to what happens after the person has won. If the candidate has, has been voted to, to, to be America's best whatever, there's always this performance, right? Right after the victory, they lead straight into this dramatic, climactic performance. And when that artist sings in that finale performance, why are they singing? Not to earn anything, they've already got it. They've been stamped righteous, worthy, pleasing already. Now they're just singing for the pleasure of singing for the people they know are already pleased with them. They sing to please those that are listening, of course. They're still performing in a sense before an audience, but not as those who have to convince that audience to be for them, as those who are overjoyed by the joy of that audience. And why the way the Bible talks about us now living before Jesus, who has already become our righteousness if we're if we belong to him, is that we, we sing to please the one who has already told us he's pleased with us. We, we perform not as if we may or may not make the cut, but as those who have no greater joy than the joy of the one who came for us, who lived and died for us, and who has made us righteous in him. That's what it means to please him now. No analogy is perfect, and that one certainly isn't. But it does get towards something true that the New Testament tells us. We should be motivated, driven to live lives that please the one who came for us. But when we do that, we do that not as those who are afraid that they might one day be dismissed but as those who have already been welcomed into the open arms of the one who came and died for them. That's what it means to please him. I want to also point you from this context to how we're able to please him. This is something really important. When we think about that America's Got Talent judge who's just sort of sitting back and detached and waiting to pounce with disapproval, we're imagining something so far different from the God who has a right to be perfectly pleased by everyone that he's ever made wasn't pleased by those who chose to live for themselves instead and responded to them not by pouncing in judgment but by entering their world to enable them to be what he made them to be. One of the things Paul's already talked about in this letter in chapter 3 is that now living as we do in an era where God's spirit belongs to us. We live in an era where God is giving us what we need to please him in the way that he's called us to. We're not operating just as we were before on our own with nothing more than what we can build with our own hands. He has given us righteousness inside of ourselves by his spirit so that we actually start to produce things that please him. So yes, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. He will, he will analyze the good things we've done and the bad, but we are not on our own in preparing for that day. He has come into our life so that he can help us please him. I've used this before. You have to forgive me for going back to old material, but this image is a lot like what happens right now in my life when my children want to buy me a birthday present. There's a sense in which I'm buying myself a present 
right? They don't have independent funds. But that doesn't mean that I'm not pleased by what they buy me. I'm enabling them, in a sense, to do something that that pleases me. And what it means to have the Spirit in us, working righteousness in us. So it's not just that we get credit for what Jesus did. It's actually that our life begins to look more like Jesus' life. Is that God is enabling, he's funding, if you will, our own attempts to please him. We don't need anything more than what he's already given us to live the life that he's calling us to here. We just have to go do it. Pleasing God is now our one and only goal in everything we do. One question matters. How can I please God? What does it look like to honor him in what's in front of me? To show trust in him in what's in front of me? To reflect something of his love for me in what's in front of me? Friends, this, this alone will last. So to those of you who are still on the way, many of you here today are training for something. You're in the early years of your adult lives. You're still building the relationships that will shape your life from here on. Much is still to come. A lot of pieces still have to fall in place. What does this mean for you? Don't stress. The things you're most worried about are things that aren't going to last. Put these things in their proper place. I know you want to get a good job. Maybe score a good fellowship. Reach tenure. Establish a family. It's fine to have goals. By all means, work hard. Plan. Make wise decisions. But friends, listen to this. Hear me now. You need to be relentlessly suspicious of your heart and its desires as you build the life you're trying to build. You cannot build anything more than a temporary tent with your own hands, walls of tissue paper trying to hold back the rain. But there is one attainable goal in front of you. In all of your working, in all of your planning, And this goal matters with breathtaking significance and eternal weight. Not will I be fulfilled, not will I be happy, not will I be adequate or even exceptional. Ask only this, will I please God? What about those of you who are more settled in? A lot of you are on the way. Some of us are already starting to settle in, others have been settled in for a while into routines that can often be exactly what you wanted from life and still really hard, draining, difficult to face day after day. How can I please God in the tasks this day will bring to me? There's our question. Moms out there facing piles of laundry, more tables to wipe down, more diapers to change. Remember this. Remind yourself of this each day when you wake up. 
this day's tasks are not keeping me from something better than this. The tent I'm living in is going to be destroyed one way or another. The building God has prepared is built by his hands, not mine. I do not need to justify my life today. I just want to please the God who justifies. What would that look like? Well, we know that Jesus pleased him perfectly. At his baptism, the heavens opened and a voice spoke and those who were there heard it. My beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. What did Jesus do? How did he please his father? John chapter 13 tells us that Jesus took up the towel. He dipped it in water. He washed the grimy, filthy feet of men who didn't deserve it. He served. Friends, the work that's in front of you today, it's sacred work. It pleases God. So what are you waiting for? The most important thing you could ever do in this earthly tent is right in front of you today. And it'll be there tomorrow. And it'll be there the day after. And nothing about your life has to change for that to be true. What are you waiting for? Father, we we don't deserve the goodness of your love towards us in Jesus, but we accept it. And now we want to live out of it to please the one who has been pleased in us already through Jesus. Give us wisdom and strength, grace and patience. Fill us with the spirit so that we can please you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.